you haven't slept? No, not really. No. <laughs> you so talk me through your day, James. In terms Turns of that, talk me through your day. <laughs> okay, so I think I left about eight, and I made my way home, and I think I slept for a bit, and then realised that well, I woke up and realised I had to do this interview. <laughs> so I think I had about an hour's sleep. Okay. Hi, my name is Hugh Jordan, filling in for Kirsty Styles for the weekly economics podcast. This week, I'm speaking to our regular guest, James Meadway, senior economist at the New Economics Foundation, about the results of last week's general election and what that means for economic policy for the next five years. Now, you said to me about 11 o'clock last night that if the exit poll was right, you'd eat your hat. Well, this is a hat. And now it's time for someone else to take forward the leadership of this party. And therefore, I announce that I will be resigning as leader of the Liberal Democrats. Uh, saying that I am standing down as leader of UKIP. The Scottish lion has roared this morning across the country. The government I led did important work. It laid the foundations for a better future, and now we must build on them. Together, we can make Great Britain greater still. So, James, uh, in last week's episode with you and Kirsty, you talked about deal-making and deal-breaking parties, um, but we haven't ended up there after the election results. That um, turned out to be an irrelevant discussion. Uh, the Conservatives have a majority. Um, so what does this mean economically? Does it mean more of the same? Uh, well, yes, it, yes, it does mean more of the same, and, and more than, than we've got used to, because, of course, Osborne has eased off somewhat on austerity over the last few years, which is an important part of why we've had a return to economic growth. I and mean, it's pretty clear from his first couple of years in office that the rate of austerity, the rate of cuts that was being applied, was exactly what was pushing the economy into what was uh, threatening to be a double dip or triple dip, even recession, this period of stagnation, of no growth, a bit of a disaster for Osborne. And basically, they eased off on this from early 2013 onwards. So we've got used, I suppose, to a lower rate of austerity, to a slower pace of cuts than the, the Conservatives have laid out in their manifesto. Uh, all of this is, is not what we discussed last week, which turned out to be a rather unfortunate <laughs> set of predictions and expectations based on opinion polls that didn't quite manifest themselves. Yeah. Uh, in relation to, to that, um, you said that obviously the Conservatives uh, eased off. Also, of course, they were in a coalition with the Lib Dems last time. Does the fact that they're not in a coalition with the Lib Dems this time mean they can go even further with some of the things that they want to push through economically? Well, this is this is a, a I'd say it's a tough one, but it's not really. I mean, look, what what held the coalition together right from the start? If you can think back to that that magical meeting in the Rose Garden at Number Ten between Nick Clegg and David Cameron, those far off days, where they basically agreed that like cutting uh, the deficit was the number one priority of the government, and that meant austerity, and that was what they were going to stick to. And there was some talk about how oh well, it's a coalition, and therefore it's unstable, and therefore they'll all row. And they did bicker and row, and it was all very you know. Fr- Brought at some point, but essentially on the core bit of cutting the deficit and, and doing the cuts, uh, there seems to be complete unanimity. It was very, very hard to find any real disagreement on this. It, you know, it was never really raised as an issue that this plan uh, was going to be stuck to. Um, so that that's the you know the, that that didn't provide very many spaces for, for for disagreement there. It was more around issues like industrial policy with people like Vince Cable, who was the business secretary, um, trying to push a more sort of interventionist line for government, a way of shaping 
affecting outcomes of businesses and this sort of thing. And that was where there were some disagreements. But on the core issue of deficit reduction austerity, not really at all. But in their manifesto promises, um, they did have red lines that they were trying to, you know, a, a pull back the Conservatives on certain economic policies. Is that right? And in this case, now the Conservatives have a majority, will they not have to do that? Can they push ahead with some of those things that potentially the Lib Dems might have tried to restrict them on? And what were those? Yeah, I mean, it looks like they can they can more or less do whatever their manifesto says. I mean, that's the, the joy of having a, a majority in Parliament is that this is how the parliamentary system works. If you can get a majority in Parliament, you can pass uh, laws and you can, in particular, pass the, the finance bill, uh, you know, the budget speech every year. And therefore, you can set the, the economic policy for, for the entire government in the entire country. So they can do whatever their manifesto says. And the manifesto is quite clear. It's going to be a, a higher rate of austerity than we've got used to. It's about £30 billion of cuts is what it looks like o- over the next few years. Um, the pattern of it is a bit weird, at least in sort of formal terms. It's quite a high rate to start with, and then it eases off towards the end, which is, of course, getting you towards a uh, general election. Um, so, but that that is what the Conservatives can do, and they have perfect freedom to do it for as long as they can command a majority in the House of Commons, of course. I mean, you mentioned a majority there. A lot of people are talking about this as a sort of historic victory, but it is still a small majority, and people are flagging up that around, it, around issues like Europe, there could potentially be rebellions that could, you know, um, put the Conservatives in difficult positions during the Parliament. Do you see that happening on economic, economic policy, or is the party very united behind what they want to achieve on that? Well, it could certainly happen around. There are definitely bits of um, wider policy where you can see the Tories starting to, to you know, fight amongst themselves in lots of different ways. The temptation with a small majority is for anybody in the back bench with a grievance, or the front bench for that matter, to start to kick up a fuss because you know the government is vulnerable. It doesn't take very many of you to suddenly find the government has no majority at all. So it puts you in potentially a powerful position. I mean, the last time the Conservatives were in this this sort of state, in this position, uh, was 1992 when John Major got elected, and he had a much bigger majority, much more impressive vote, really, than, than Cameron got this time round, and had continual problems with uh, backbench rebellions of one sort or another, particularly over the issue of Europe. And of course, the issue of Europe is going to turn up uh, rather large in this parliament as well. However, on the central issue of how to run the economy, and in particular, how to do fiscal policy, the big decisions on taxing and spending, I think the Conservatives are very, very united on this. And I think George Osborne will claim some authority on the back of the election result, on the back of growth figures and all the rest of it. He'll say, look, this has worked. I said it'll work. You should uh, all follow me uh, and we'll stick to the plan. Again, where there might be some variations on this is on more sort of slightly less central issues like industrial policy, like regional growth, like how you might deliver some of the other smaller parts of the manifesto away from the core bit of austerity. So proposals like Lord Heseltine's from a few years ago for uh, regional growth funds and all this sort of stuff. There might be some disagreements around that and about what you might want to do. But on the core bit, on austerity, uh, I think unanimity. Okay. Quite apart from Parliament, um, you think that there might be some more structural problems stored up for um, the Conservative government um, within, uh, within the economy based on, um, well, what they're inheriting from um, a government that they've just been part of, really. What do you think those kind of structural problems are? Yeah, they've inherited a a bit of a mess, uh, frankly, or rather a lot of a mess. It's not really something that's emerged yet, because the the kind of headline figures, the two that the government point to, uh, and will continue to point to, are GDP growth, which is 
is up uh, and quite high relative to other sort of large developed economies and job creation, which is really high, which is really you know, surprisingly high in lots of ways. And they point to that and say, this is success. This is great. GDP up, job uh, creation, great. Now, as is well known, the job creation part of it is is uh, certainly problematic. If you look at the large numbers of zero hours contracts and insecure work and underemployment, and for that matter, wages that still appear to be below what they were in 2010, uh, at least on the average real wages, despite some increases in recent months. So there's lots and lots of problems attached there. The deeper bits are, I think, when you get into not just the fiscal deficit, which is still substantial. This is the government's deficit. This is the gap between what it taxes, what it gets in taxes, and what it spends on all its public services and all the rest. So that's a government fiscal deficit, uh, which Osborne was aiming to close by, by kind of the end of this year, and is now currently around about £90 billion pounds or thereabouts. So it's way above uh, what he said it would be. The plan on that part has gone really, really uh, off track. There is also this kind of household deficit that after years of households in general, in the aggregate, trying to repay debts, they've now swung back into the point of being net borrowers from the rest of the economy. So households are now borrowing more and more money from everybody else. Uh, and that's going into their spending. And that's part of what keeps the economy moving. But it does mean that household debt is now stacking up again at quite a rate. And the final one is a current account deficit, basically the gap between what we buy from the rest of the world and what we sell to the rest of the world. So let's focus in on one of those structural problems, James, household debt. What would a household debt crisis look like in practice for this government? Well, this this is um, it's kind of what happened over 2000, starting in 2006 and then through to 2007, 2008 with the subprime crisis in the US. It's a classic example of this. So what you might see happening here is something where a lot of the borrowing that's taking place has been through not so much mortgages uh, that we're focusing on here, but unsecured lending. So lending on credit cards, store cards, uh, if you borrow some money to buy a car, uh, uh, if you go to a payday lender, that kind of really often quite risky lending with no asset attached to it, that's often a lot more insecure than, say, just getting a mortgage or whatever. So this is often lending to people who will may be in financial difficulties. Now, one estimate for the amount of borrowing out there is perhaps there's about £50 billion of problem debt of people who are borrowing, but they're having to borrow just to keep where they are and they're borrowing more and more, and they may well face problems in the future where they can't repay this stuff. That becomes a crisis. It's a personal crisis for them you can't repay. I mean, it's a serious crisis if you can't repay your debt. It becomes a wider economic crisis if lots of people can't do that. Lots of people will not be able to do that if they don't have the income, if they don't have the money coming in to repay that debt. And of course, with incomes fairly low, that could be a problem. Okay. Okay, James. But I've heard this from you before. This sounds a lot like what you were saying five years ago. Actually, what's ended up happening is George Osborne has timed this quite well. He's he you know made a lot of cuts at the beginning of the parliament. He stimulated at the right time. We now have growth in the economy, as you said, jobs, uh, job creation, all of this. Is this just not going to happen again with this government? Are they not going to make some cuts at the beginning, stimulate at the right time, and get it right and get you know potentially get the Conservatives elected again? Well, that that could be a plan, uh, and all the discussion is of front loading the cuts. So you take all the pain now. It's all very unpleasant now. I mean, bear in mind, if they cut hard now, you'll probably drive the economy back into recession, which doesn't look good. And they, they may not actually want to take the pain on that one. So we'll see how far how far we get with this. But if you cut now, in theory, you can ease off towards the end of Parliament and then you set up everything nicely, perhaps even for some you know tax giveaways and all the rest of it. And then everybody's happy and they've forgotten about the pain at the, 
started Parliament. That would be the theory. We've ended up doing something like this, although it's worth bearing in mind that this wasn't, I don't think, uh, George Osborne and the Coalition's original plan. It's not what was set out in their forecasts, their original forecasts from the Office Budget Responsibility in, in June 2010, which said by this point we'd be having an investment boom, we'd be selling loads of exports, everybody's wages would be going through the roof. None of this really happened. They ended up, I think, by around about early 2013, with an economy that wasn't working largely because you were applying so much austerity. They had a bit of a panic about this. They eased off an austerity, which was not in the plan, and they made it easier uh, for people to get mortgages, to stoke up the housing, house price bubble, all these things, and that helped stoke up the rest of the economy. That wasn't planned. That wasn't part of the plan. Now, having done it once, they may try and do it a second time. The difficulty is that by if you're going to do things like stoke up housing uh, or household debt and ease off an austerity and the rest of it, all the problems that you've got are still there. You're not dealing with any of them. You're not dealing with these structural issues. So all those problems are still there just waiting to collapse on your head at some point. And I would have thought it's increasingly likely as you go on that at some point one of these kind of bear traps the government will wander into. Okay, James, well, an optimistic end as usual. And you'll be happy to know we're not going to uh, ask you for predictions about political parties over the next little while. But thank you so much for your election analysis over this time. Thank you. Music for the weekly economics podcast is provided by Poddington Bear. We're now up to episode 12 of the weekly economics podcast. If you haven't listened to us before, you can catch up with us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts from. We'll be back at the same time next week. Hold up. 